Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Friends, we're glad that you're here with us today. And even though we can't all be together in the same room, we know that the church is not a building. The church is a people. And in this season, I just ran across a quote a couple weeks ago that I wanted to share with you. I just want you to know we're going to get through this time. Uh, One of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, one time wrote this. He said, Beloved, if it had been possible to destroy the church of God on earth, it would have been destroyed long ago. Friends, we're going to get through this. And I want you to know the Lord is by your side. The Lord sees you you. The Lord knows what you're going through. The Lord is very much aware of everything that's happening in our world. And we're going to get through this together with the Lord's, with the Lord's help and with him by our side. Uh, unfortunately, we as a church can't be by your side right now, but we would love to know how we can serve you, how we can help you, how we can be praying for you. And that's going to take even a little more initiative than normal on your part. And so I just encourage you, if you have a need, if there's any way we can connect you to a small group, we can be praying for you, we can help you grow or serve, uh, serve you in any way, would you just reach out to us. You can fill out a connect card online. Uh, You can uh, fill out something in the comments even right now as you're watching, but reach out to us some way and let us know how we can, how we can serve you and how we can help you grow in this time. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come today, um, even though we're separated physically, we spiritually are united and we come today and we just ask that you would be by our side. Father, I pray for each person that's viewing. Father, I pray that they would know that, that the Lord is by their side even now. That you are by their side as they work through just physical um, things, as they work through emotional and relational and uh, spiritual issues in their own life. Father, that you are going to be by their side to help walk with them every step of the way. Lord, would you, would you just be real to us? Would you make yourself known? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, just stir up our hearts to trust you even more, to wait on you in this season. Father, for, for your glory and for our good. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen. Well, friends, we are going to continue our series. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24 today, and I've got a, I've got a question uh, for you, and, and I really need an answer. I want to know, which one of you prayed for patience? Uh, because I've kind of got a bone to pick. I, I know we all, need to, we all need help in this waiting thing of life, but this is getting a little ridiculous. I, you know, when this thing started, you think a day or two is going to be okay, maybe a week or two. But, and it's just getting tough, isn't it? Just to wait on the Lord to bring about some resolution to this. And surely we don't need this much help with waiting, but, uh, but it seems like it's going to be something we're going to wrestle with for a while. Like someone in our church texted me this week and he said, and I am ready for just a loudspeaker in a field if we could all be together again for church. And coming out of Easter last week, I just felt that. Easter is my favorite Sunday of the year. It has been since I was a kid. And I love getting to preach on Easter and just celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus together and hear your voices singing. And so there's just this kind of gnawing of, uh, of anxiety as we have to wait through this season. And uh, that friend, as he was texting, said, you know, my family's to the point now where we would be willing to risk, uh, to, to brave 35 or 30 mile an hour winds, 30 degree temperatures, if we could just 
just be with real life 3D people again. And uh, do you feel that? Uh, you probably feel the same way, don't you? And uh, I know I feel that way in terms of church, but you probably feel that way in terms of work, in terms of going to the gym, in terms of school, sports, all the things in life that you want to be doing right now. And you're just having to wait. And the reality for us is waiting is, is hard, but I think it also raises a good question. Does, does waiting actually produce something good in us? Can there actually be a purpose to waiting? And uh, we're going to explore that idea today. And here's, what I, here's what, I, what I hope is happening for you and for me during the season. But waiting oftentimes removes the scaffolding of our lives. The things, the props that we sort of kind of lean on and depend on and count on. The, the friendships we run to. The work that we continue to run to, to. To busy ourselves. The entertainment and cycles of life that we just have gotten in a pattern of of running to to prop up our lives and feel important. So that's when we have to wait. Those, those just get peeled away. They get stripped back. And uh, the nothingness of waiting can be hard because we feel a little bit out of control. And whatever it is you do to achieve, uh, to escape, to, uh, to feel connected to other people, uh, when you have to wait and when you feel a little bit isolated, those things are, are, are removed and we're kind of left to ourselves. And we're left to uh, just that part of our, our lives that sometimes is weak or impatient or uh, just the busyness of our hearts that we have to quiet down. And, and so waiting can surface those things. And what we're going to see today is that I think waiting actually serves a purpose for us. And for God's people, waiting always has a purpose. It's never merely an interruption to the productivity and comfort of normal life, as we say. And so here's the big idea we're going to explore today, is waiting builds trust and trust builds character. And I wondered if you just would actually read that out loud to me even right now. Waiting builds trust and trust builds character. And so we're going to look at that and see in the life of David. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And as we uh, begin to read there in verse 1, we're just going to see that David gets tested and see to see if he will also wait on the Lord. And we're going to pick up the story. Uh, David in the last chapter has narrowly escaped uh, Saul and his army as they were closing in around him. And David's uh, Saul was called away to, to fight the Philistines. And I mean, I don't know what Saul's deal is exactly, his obsession with catching David. It seems like every time there's a gap in his calendar, he drives 3,000 people back to go hunt David down. It's almost like his manhood is threatened. He thinks, if I don't get this giant slayer out of my way, my man card's going to get revoked. So He's always running after David. And that's kind of where we pick up the story here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, verse 1 says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the, cave, and the men said to David, Here's the day that the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And, his men, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. 
Afterward, David arose also and went out of the cave. And he called after Saul, my Lord, my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. And may in my hand but my hand shall not be against you. This is God's word. As we look at the story of David, it's kind of a funny story. David uh, and his ragtag army are in the recesses of this cave, and uh, Saul, though he is king, still senses nature's call like any other person does. And uh, he has got 3,000 forces down below, and David and his men are hiding in the dark inside this cave. And Saul has to go in, and he forgot to bring his porta potty. And so he's uh, having to step into the cave, it says, to relieve himself. And that means exactly what you think it means. And so uh, as you think about this, Saul's going to step into the cave because it was against the law for him to relieve himself in the camp in the midst of the community of people. And so he's got to go find a quiet place. And, and let's just be honest. Let's keep it real for a minute. Uh, guys, that's kind of what we do, right? Like we, It's a place of escape. Uh, for some of you dads that are at home right now dealing with uh, kind of sheltering in place with a large family, uh, the bathroom may be the only place of quiet and escape that you get to go to. And so I kind of picture Saul is here and he's thinking, man, I can get away from the tree. I can get away from my advisors. I can get a quiet moment to myself. And so he steps into what he assumes to be a private space. And yet David and his men are in the recesses of this cave watching everything that's going down. And so uh, as you think about Saul in this, let's say, vulnerable position, uh, he goes in and he literally says that he covers his feet. He disrobes. When he says he covers his feet with his robe, uh, it just means that he, he's disrobing himself to relieve himself. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, with your pants down. I've always wondered if that came from this text, but it's a funny scene in many ways as you think about Saul hunting David down and here David is, is watching him. And so David's men see Saul in this precarious position and they see this as this is a perfect time to relieve themselves of their greatest enemy. They see it as a heaven-sent opportunity and just say, man, David, God, is, God has given you a chance to avenge yourself against this one that continues to hurl spears at you and continues to hunt us down like wild animals. And now's your chance that God has given you to retaliate and to take Saul's life. Now, what they actually said was, David, here's the day which the Lord said to you. Now, the only problem with that is that God never said what they claimed that God had said. Uh, God never, there's no place in the Bible where it says, David, you can wait and God's going to provide an opportunity for you to do whatever you want against Saul, your enemy. And so David uh, is listening to what these men are saying. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting 
dilemma that I think we find ourselves, or that David finds himself in, and I think we find ourselves in that same place sometimes. Have, have you ever done that with the Bible? Have you ever reinterpreted what God has said in order to make it say what you want it to say? Just maybe twist it a little bit, just, just put a little nuance on it to make it a little more amenable to, uh, to the things you want to, you want to do and to your own desires? Uh, one guy says, uh, or just there's a saying that goes, wonderful things in the Bible I see, things that are put there by you and by me. So our circumstances, our reason, our emotions, our desires, sometimes our pain can, can work within us to cause us to want to reshape God's word into, the way, into what we want it to say. And so we modify things to accommodate it to our will. And God gets blamed for all kinds of stuff he didn't do, doesn't he? And these guys are trying to justify this, this kind of violent action against Saul by, uh, by blaming God and saying, well, God wants you to do this. Now, reality for us is this is one of the most difficult things in life. The, the danger of confusing God's will for our will, of confusing God's desires for my desires. And we do this in all kinds of ways. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll hear someone, a lonely person say, hey, I met someone and it was amazing. They just happened to be going through all the same feelings at all the same times that I was feeling those things. And it just felt like God put this person in my life. Surely the Lord wants me to be in a relationship with this person. Right, Pastor? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, how about the person who says, Man, it's amazing that iPhone, that the new iPhone comes out right on my payday, as though Apple can negotiate when most people's payday is and roll out a new product on that day. Uh, there's other ways we do this. Is, you know, the bank gave me a loan, so that must mean I, I should buy the house. And there's all kinds of ways that, that we can justify these things and say, well, God must want me to have these things. But neither our desires nor our circumstances are very good guides to the will of God. And just because you see an open door doesn't mean that God put it there and you need to walk through it. Uh, sometimes we need to uh, use wisdom in order to know what it is that we are really called to do. So what does David do? Here, as you look in verses 4 and 5, David, rather than killing Saul... It says he arose and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because of what he had done. Now, the word arose there means that he made a, a it's really a, a strong word that says he made a decision, a commitment. He rose up in order to accomplish something. And so David wasn't just wandering into this situation. He, he knew in his mind exactly what he intended to do. And so he got up and he went and he clipped off part of, of Saul's robe. Now, that seems much less dangerous uh, dangerous than clipping off Saul's head, but there's also a problem there. Clipping off part of Saul's robe was probably a rebellious act where David was tearing, kind of symbolically acting in rebellion or revolt against Saul and saying, your kingdom has been taken away from you and transferred from your house or your family to my house and my family now. And so David knew what he was going to do. In fact, we saw in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel referenced this sort of thing before because Saul's robe had been torn away and the prophet Samuel uh, several chapters earlier said to Saul, just as your robe's been torn away, God's tearing away the kingdom from you. So David intentionally is acting purposefully in this moment and he tore Saul's robe. Do you notice what it says? It says his heart 
struck him. His heart smote him, the old translations would say. And it, it happened after what he had done. So David gets up and he commits and he does the thing. And immediately afterwards, and he's just convicted in his heart. Isn't it always afterwards that we feel those convictions? Uh, so often it's after we do that thing that we feel that shame of guilt. And what we see in David is if our hearts belong to God, that we're sensitive to the conviction of God. Every one of us can tell a story where we've done something wrong, and if, we're, if, if, if our hearts belong to the Lord, even before we were caught, we were convicted by the Lord about the thing which we had done. We felt a sense of burden or shame about those things, and if, when you really want to walk with God, we start to do what David did. You get bothered by even the little things. See, David didn't physically harm Saul, even though Saul was trying to harm him. But he dishonored Saul, and he dishonored the Lord in the way in which he acted. And that, that even, even that small action, just, it says that it, his heart struck him and convicted him. He was kind of convicted to his core. That's a deep reverence for, for God and a deep reverence for God's appointed king. So you notice what David says. He says, this is Yahweh's anointed, meaning this is God's man. It's not mine to remove him from the, from the throne. God placed him there. God can take him down. It's not mine to execute. And so he just perceived that attacking God's man was an attack on God himself. See, that's what happens in the heart of a man who trusts God. David's biggest problem wasn't getting himself into the kingship. His biggest problem was getting himself ready to be king, getting his character ready to be king. And the hard truth of this is that killing Saul would have taken care of almost every difficulty in David's life. And in the eyes of his men, they looked and said, man, this is, this is our opportunity. This is our chance. This will take away every hard thing we're dealing with right now if you'll just act on this one moment. And yet David yields to conviction and refuses to act. And can I, can I warn you about a danger here? So there's a danger that we might not feel what David felt. That we might feel a pang of guilt, but, not, but refuse to act on it. That's why the Bible says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. It's saying, act quickly. That if God speaks to you, if he convicts you, if you feel that, that kind of smiting of your own heart, or your heart struck with a sense of, of shame or guilt, and stop immediately. David, it's, it, it's obvious here that he's publicly repentant. Verse six, he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. He's emotionally engaged when he says, God forbid, he's saying, far be it for me to do this thing. Meaning, I don't even want to be close to risking falling in this sort of a way. Far be it for me, God forbid that I would do this. He's emotionally invested in not doing it. He doesn't soft, soften what he's doing. He doesn't try to justify it and say to his guys, well, and you guys are pressuring me. I felt some, you know, I felt this kind of external pressure to perform in a way I shouldn't have. And so I should, he doesn't try to justify it or, or, or kind of sugarcoat it. He owns his weakness. He slams the brakes on and just says, no, I'm not going to do this. See, that's, that's what holiness is about. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will always provide a way out so that you may stand up under it. See, temptation is going to come all of our ways, but it says God gives us a way of escape. There's a moment, there's an opportunity, there's a chance where everything hangs in the air and we've got a choice of whether we're going to act to get ourselves out of that position or whether we're going to embrace it. But you have to commit to the way of escape in that moment. 
I think this is why old guys never brag about their morality. Because so many of us have been beat up by our own sin and our own shame and we know where we've fallen short. That There is a sense of humility, a sense of trepidation, a sense of, uh, a sense of, of just having to trust the Lord with our failures because our hearts have struck us when we've done wrong in the past. So there ought to be that kind of a humility to us as, as followers of God. And so, so we stay humble. And that's character that a king needs. When you think about David in the middle of this situation, he needed an internal motivation to do the right thing. And David, to me, when I think about just the difficulty of this decision he would have had to make, David knows that not executing Saul is going to cause him pain. Not executing Saul is going to extend the waiting that David has to the day when he can become king. He has an opportunity here to, to expedite the promises of God and to take hold of them and make them a reality and to put himself on the throne even right now. And yet David knows that, that not acting here is going to lead to more waiting. <clears throat> He's going to choose to wait. Um, A.W. Pink, in his great book, The Life of David, says this about this moment. He says, one stroke of the sword, and David steps into the throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell to a life of a hunted goat. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease. Adulations, triumphs, riches would be David's. But his at the sacrifice of faith. His at the sacrifice of a humbled will. Ever waiting on God's time at the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care, God's provision, God's guidance, God's tenderness. No, even a throne at that price is too dear. Faith will wait. So you only choose against your immediate good if you believe that there's a greater good to come. And so David resists the temptation to take the kingship for himself because he believes that waiting is going to bring about something better later on. Friends, I think that's a good question or a good place for us just to stop and ask ourselves a question. Like, do you have a price that would be high enough that you would say, I will give up on waiting for the Lord, waiting on the Lord? If, if I were able to achieve this. Imagine, imagine the old scale. You know the old scales? Not the ones that you weigh yourself to see how much quarantine weight you put on, but the old scales that have like a fulcrum in the middle and they've got two pans and chains and they hang down and they kind of move up and down based on that. If you put weighting on God on one side of that scale, just imagine what would have to be on the other side of that scale for it to tip to a point where you would say, it's no, I would now sell out weighting on the, on the Lord. I would now, I would cave in and not wait on the Lord if I knew I could just have this thing? What, what's the thing that would be there that would make that worth it to you to dishonor the Lord, to not to wait on the Lord, to not to work in the Lord's ways, but to say, I have to have this right now, and so I'm going to take hold of it. See, if you put, if you, if you put those two things on a scale, what we see is uh, this is why waiting builds trust. That we have to, if, as we wait on the Lord, trust that the Lord's way is going to be better. And so we don't want to let those scales tip out of balance. But you have to trust moment by moment as life comes to you. And when you blow it, you have to repent and trust again. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, a seared conscience? I think that's what this speaks of, the, the danger of a seared conscience. That David felt convicted. His heart spoke to him when he did wrong. And there's a danger that if we continually ignore the Lord, that our heart would be seared, that it's actually going to be cauterized, that that, that heart muscle or that conscience uh, we, we would no longer react to the stimulus around us because it's dead and insensitive to God's correction. And that's a scary place for us to live. 
What we see for David here is that grace is at work in David's life and a healthy leader is an inside out leader who's ruled internally by a faith-filled heart which allows him to externally act with grace and with goodness. And so David... Uh, walks through this moment and he settles it in his, his own heart what he's going to do. But you notice he doesn't keep that to himself. In verse 7 it says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So David takes what's going on in here and he expresses it outwardly to his men. When it says he persuaded, he actually means that he tore apart the men. He, he, he cut them down, he broke them down, he, he, he continued to kind of tear them up in terms of his words to make sure they understood, you are not allowed to act against Saul. And so he made his own convictions known to them. It's important sometimes to hold your peers to account. And David has the courage to do what is right even when his men were pushing him to do that which is wrong. Uh, friends, for us, we're going we're gonna to be in the midst of people who are going to push us in all kinds of directions. And that's why it's going to be harder for us sometimes to listen to the voice of the Lord and speak with courage and to step into that space where we need to speak up to do what is right. And they will and sometimes encourage us to pursue things that are contrary to God's word. They will ask us to expedite God's plans and to, to try to press forward and find shortcuts in, in, in seeking the promises that God has for us. Chuck Swindoll says this, and I love the way he says this in kind of his, his own voice. He says, the people you rub shoulders with every day need to see that kind of challenge. Not prudish, not preachy, just crackerjack creek, clean living, just honest to goodness, bone deep, non-hypocritical integrity, authentic obedience to God. Man, is that not true? You're, you're surrounded by people who need to see that kind of faith, who need to see that kind of integrity lived out in the moment-to-moment -moment stuff of life. Your kids need to see it. Your spouse needs to see it. Your coworkers and your neighbors need to see it. We need to, do, we need to put on display when, when things are, put, put our faith on display when real things are on the line. When the heat's turned up and in the moment-to-moment -moment waiting of life, people need to see someone with integrity that just with an authentic obedience and trust in the Lord is willing to walk out their faith. That's what we see here in David. In verse 8, um, let's see what happens after that. It says, afterwards, David settled in his own heart. Uh, after David kind of settled in his own heart and with his men, now he's free to stand up and he, he addresses Saul. So he didn't cower down. He's not waiting in the Lord saying, Saul, you get to do whatever you want. But he's stepping into that moment with courage and he's actually speaking up and he's going he's gonna to stand and he hollers out to Saul and he says, my Lord, my king. And don't you know that it would have terrified Saul? That as Saul leaves this cave after having relieved himself, that all of a sudden from behind him, he hears a voice that he recognizes, David, my Lord and my King. He turns around and he sees David, and David bows to the ground all the way below, all, all the way beneath Saul. Imagine his shock, and I'm probably wondering if this is some sort of reverse psychology of play, and wondering where the, where the game is, is going to be played in the next, next couple moments. But as David then calls him out, David says, stands up, and with all of Saul's army uh, watching, David just puts this piece of cloth up and says, Saul, I could have had it. I, I, could, have had, I could have had your head, but instead I just cut the hem of your garment. And he doesn't wait for answer to Saul, but he goes on and he makes his case for his own innocence. Uh, he, he goes and says, may the Lord judge between you and me. David proves his innocence beyond any reasonable doubt. And he's, 
the reason why he's able to speak so confidently is he's confident in God. He's confident in God's justice. He's confident in God's timing. He's confident in God's way, in God's plan. And, and, and because of that trust, it's the key to his, his waiting on the Lord, that, that God will bring resolution and goodness, if not in this life, then in life after life. And so rather than seizing the kingship that God had promised him, he's going to wait on the Lord. Friends, where do you think David learned to wait like that? Do you think it was in this moment that it dawned on him he, he needed to wait on the Lord and just trust the Lord? No. This is something that had been established over years of seeking after the Lord, of running after the Lord, of allowing the, the Lord to work in his heart by his grace to nurture character in David. And so this was something that he'd been preparing for for, for years, years of waiting on God, years of solitude as he, as he shepherded the sheep, years of talking to the Lord in prayer, years of, of quiet moments of obedience when no one was looking. And that shaped David's life and built his character. That's why I say wielding, uh, waiting builds trust and trust builds character. And so what was Saul's response? Verses 16 and 17, as David has finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul says, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? He, he remembers this David that he had once cared for and seems to have this moment of, of his own conviction. And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. In this passage, in the verses that come, as Saul continues his speech, he uses four different times the term for good or goodness. Speaking about David and David's action, he's able to look and just objectively see and what David did was good and what I've done was evil. And so David's testimony is speaking volumes here. He praises David. He acknowledges his own wrongdoing. He even goes on to say that, David, I know you're going to be king and that your family's going to be king. And he, he begs for mercy for his heirs that David would watch out for them. And, uh, and then, they, then they part ways and, and Saul goes back on his own way and leaves David to himself. Now friends, I wish I could say that people will always respond this well and this graciously whenever, uh, whenever you have to confront them and whenever you have to speak up in, in the middle of, of difficult times, but they don't. Sometimes they're going to react poorly and you know what happens with that when you experience that? It means you have to wait even longer on the Lord and you have to trust the Lord and, and that the Lord's got something else that's even better for us down the road. When we suffer a disappointment or an injustice, and there's always a temptation for us to try to take matters in our own hands and expedite a better resolution. But it's, it's just time even then to, to rest and to wait in the Lord even more. So as we've looked at this passage, here's the question for us. What can we learn from all this? Can I just say, I don't like waiting. I think waiting oftentimes just, it feels helpless and insignificant. And yet what we see is that there's a purpose in waiting. We need to recognize that sometimes waiting is beneficial. I love what J.D. Greer says about waiting. He says there's kind of two definitions of the word wait. One is simple inaction. Simple inaction just does nothing at all. That you're just sitting around waiting, uh, hoping that something else happens to you. That's one idea of waiting. But there's a second idea of waiting. That's attentive readiness. Attentive readiness is it's like an Air Force pilot who's, who's on high alert, who's waiting for the call so that he can rush, to, rush into battle at a moment's notice. And you see, those are two very different kinds of waiting. And I think it's important for us when we think about this time of waiting to say, what, which kind of waiting describes us? I mean, are we spiritually attentive? Are we on alert? Are we waiting and looking for how God's working in the moments, ready to act whenever God speaks? I think there's different kinds of waiting. 
Um, uh, someone mentioned there's uh, you know two, two different kinds of waiters when you go to restaurants. You know you go to uh, there's there's a certain kind of waiter at Waffle House. There's another kind of waiter at a five star Michelin uh, Michelin rated restaurant. Uh, the Waffle House rate waiter may not pay a whole lot of attention, and your coffee may run out. And you may have to kind of bang it on the table to get their attention and get them to come over and serve you. You may have to wave them down when you want to order. Uh, there may be a, a waiter that's there, but maybe they're not that attentive to you. But if you go to a, a really, really nice restaurant, how does that waiter treat you? And they're there the second you look their way. They're constantly aware of you. They may focus their entire attention on your one table. And your glass never hits bottom because they're there to fill it up. If your napkin falls off your knee, they're there to put it back up. Any chance that they can be there to serve you, they're waiting to serve you. And, and if, since we're in this season, I just want to ask the question of how are we waiting? Are we waiting with this kind of attentiveness to the Lord? This, this focus on what is God up to and this, this willingness to, to know that God's will must come to pass God's way. But we're, we're living at attention, looking for how God's going to work in the everyday waiting stuff of life. See, this is how waiting deepens our trust in the Lord. When we wait on him, when we're, when we're expectant, when we believe that, that our waiting is not meaningless, that it's not, just, it's not just shelving us for a time in kind of this inaction, but that our waiting is, is actually going to produce something good in us, I think it fosters trust. And out of that trust, God builds our character. And so that helps develop us as people. That's why I said at the beginning, waiting builds trust and trust builds character. See, for a Christian, waiting is never meaningless. Waiting is never a mere annoyance. Waiting is never just riding out the storm. Waiting always has purpose. Did you know that even Jesus had to wait? At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was out in the desert. He was going to be tempted by, by Satan. And his enemy would come and the devil came and he took him to a very high mountain. And they overlooked the mountain. He showed him kind of all the things that were down below there. And Satan offered and said, I can give you a kingdom over all of this right now if you'll just trust me. And he, and he, and he threw this offer out. He says, all this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus could have had it all. He could have done it immediately. What Satan was offering Christ was a crown without a cross. See, the problem was that you and I could never have enjoyed that kingdom with Jesus. Hey, and so Jesus could have had his kingdom in an instant. He could have shortcut everything, but it would have cut us out of his kingdom. And so he had to wait. He had to wait and, and practice obedience. He had to wait and walk by moment by moment faith in his Lord. He had to wait and go through the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to wait and go through the cross in order to, give, in order to fulfill uh, the, the sacrifice for our sins and, and also in order to incorporate us into his kingdom. For us to get to be there with him in his kingdom, he had to wait and he had to do things God's way and he had to wait on God's plan and fulfill God's plan and he had to wait on God's timing and he did so that we could be with him. Now, here's what's interesting about Satan's temptation of Jesus. He didn't promise Jesus anything that God hadn't already promised Jesus. He just said, why don't you do it my way? See, God had promised Jesus a kingdom. Satan offered Jesus a kingdom. But he said, you have to do it my way. And Jesus waited. Friends, we have to wait too. There's oftentimes the promises of God, the thing God wants for us, the things that God has said he's going to give us, and we want to expedite them, we want to take hold of them, but we want to do it a way that God did not ordain or, or authorize. And so, let me ask you this, was Christ's waiting worth it? 
Well, it's the only way that we could know his grace and his love. It's the only way that we could live with him forever. So of course it was worth it. He saved us for a purpose and our waiting helps prepare us for a purpose as well. Do you know that we were called to represent God on this earth as vice regents over all creation? We see in God's promises to Adam. We're called to be ambassadors, the New Testament tells us. We're called to be a blessings to, blessing to others as, speaks, as spokespeople of God's kingdom. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to be a light for the nations. We're called to be those who reconcile people to God through the gospel of Jesus. All of that is things that God has blessed us with and given us the grace and opportunity to walk into that, that calling. And just as David had a calling to go be king and his waiting was preparing him for that, for that, that, process, uh, that, that throne, God is, sometimes gives us opportunities to wait so that he might prepare us, that we might walk more faithfully into all that he's called us to do. So here's my question for you. What does God want to teach you in this, in this time of waiting? Maybe the Lord wants you to trust him with some area of your life. Maybe the Lord wants to shape something in your character, but I believe that there's purpose even in the waiting for you right now. Maybe the Lord's preparing you for a purpose of a more deep and meaningful life. Maybe he's preparing you uh, for your role in your family, your role in your neighborhood, your role in your church, your role even in our, in our, our community or our nation or our planet. Friends, waiting is hard, but waiting is never meaningless. So in this season, and can we just commit to trust the Lord? To trust the Lord that somehow in this season of waiting, that, that, that waiting is going to build our trust, which is going to build our character, and that it all has purpose, which is for the glory of God and for the good of others. So let me just offer you a blessing that as you wait, because this isn't easy, let me just offer this blessing as we close. Friends, as you wait on the Lord, as you struggle in this moment in many ways, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, the Lord will carry you through this season and he will, he will produce something good out of it. And let's trust him and walk with him every step of the way.